Well, it seems like every day we're confronted by a new form of human injustice and human iniquity. And the more egregious the human iniquity, the more urgently we respond rightly. Why? Why? Good Friday is a day about justice, is a day about human iniquity and divine justice. How will God fix everything? And we naturally, as Christians have done for thousands of years, ask, why? Why did Jesus have to suffer? I want to spend the next few minutes considering the cross, considering what Christ has done for us. But first, let's pray together. Heavenly Father, on this day, when we commemorate the suffering of your Son, please bring our souls into a moment of sincere reflection. Help us with all honesty and sincerity together to bring our hearts to you for inspection, encouragement, conviction, truth, for whatever you would have for us today. Most of all now, show us Christ. Show us Christ in his living, in his dying, in his joyful suffering for sinners like us. Show us Christ. And let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Why, why, why did Jesus have to suffer? Firstly, to enter into our suffering. God's plan for his son was not simply for him to come and die a human death, but that he would live a life acquainted with every kind, every form, every type of human suffering. Hebrews 2, 17 says, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God. And that's what we see in these passages. I'm so glad we could spend the time to read so much of the story of Jesus' final few evenings um, before the cross. What we see is Jesus, uh, before he bleeds on the cross, experiencing every flavor of human disappointment, disease, and disorder. Jesus' reconciling work came to a climax in the cross of Christ, but it didn't begin there. Jesus knew every kind of suffering. Having descended in, and put on human flesh to join us in every kind of everyday human suffering, illness and disease and his body slowly not doing what it did when he was 20 and all of those normal things, he then went through the hardest week, I think, that any human could have. We read a few of those things, even in his last hours. Jesus suffering uh, the deepest hardships that humans endure. We heard uh, just a few moments ago of Judas, the man who claimed to be Jesus' friend, the man who was Jesus' disciple, who, who went with him from town to town, who who cast out demons with Christ, who learned from him, who was encouraged by him, who prayed with him. 
making a clandestine plan to betray the Son of Man with a kiss. Before Jesus shed his blood on the cross, Jesus was betrayed by someone who should have been protecting him. Jesus was entering our suffering, experiencing with it all of the curse that we are under so that he could be with us in our suffering. We heard of Peter. Peter and his promised faithfulness. Uh, I will be with you always. He would fight with Jesus to the last man. Uh, Peter, known for his brashness of, and, and certainly overpromised, only to deny mere hours later that he even knew Jesus. Before Jesus shed his blood on the cross, Jesus was deserted and disowned by his closest friends. Jesus was entering our suffering, experiencing all of the world's curse with us. Then we saw Jesus before this kangaroo court of the Jewish authorities and the Roman authorities of the day, holding trial away from the public to avoid their outcry because their plan from the beginning was to execute him no matter what the evidence showed. Before Jesus shed his blood on the cross, Jesus was unjustly convicted of a crime he never committed. Not to mention, of course, Jesus going to the cross and experiencing the agony of human death. Of course, we remember on the cross that Jesus, uh, he doesn't cry, my head, my head, my hands, my hands, my feet, but my God, my God. But at the same time, it wasn't just divine wrath that he was suffering under, he was suffering a true human death a true human death that all of us, if the Lord should not return sooner, will experience. The Lord Jesus, in his last few hours, went to every length to experience every kind of suffering that we can face. We realize, don't we, uh, that the world is not how it ought to be. We know that in the beginning when God created his people Adam and Eve and placed them in his place, the Garden of Eden, to live under his rule and enjoying his blessing uh, in intimate relationship with him, our first parents' sin ruined that good start and instead of being God's people in his place, we are estranged, all of us, every one of us, born in a state of broken relationship with our creator. We've been exiled from God's place. Suffering, that is to say, has a genealogy. Every moment of suffering, our suffering under the sun, can trace its lineage back to that first moment of disobedience. From the smallest hangnail to the wars and injustices that confront us on our TV screens and newspapers, it's clear that everything has gone terribly wrong. Doesn't everything within you rage against the suffering that we face even on a day-to-day basis? It shouldn't be this way, we say in our hearts. We shouldn't get sick. We shouldn't bleed. We shouldn't be estranged from our friends. We shouldn't suffer. We shouldn't die. But we do. And every moment of disorder in our world is ultimately the product of God's people turning their backs, both collectively and individually, on our Creator. And so while we can say Jesus came to suffer with us and to experience every kind, every type of human suffering with us so that we can never say that we're alone in it and so that he can truly heal us in it, we must admit that we are not just sufferers, we are also sinners. We are part of the problem. 
so while Jesus suffered to enter into our suffering, Jesus ultimately suffered to satisfy God's justice. To return to that verse I, I stated initially, Hebrews 2.17, it does say, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. In that passage that Rachel just read, uh, that was uh, Luke 23, 41, we read the words of the criminal on the cross next to Christ, saying, do you not fear God since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed justly, we indeed justly, for we're receiving the due reward for our deeds. But this man, that is Jesus, has done nothing wrong. It seems without doubt that each one of us recognizes that injustice requires a solution, requires a reckoning. At least, if you're anything like me, I realize that when the injustices are being done against me. I am ashamed to admit there are things that people have said. There are ways that I was treated, ways that I was slighted, that I can still remember with incredible clarity, even though they happened decades ago. Maybe you're the same. And in my darker moments, I find myself fantasizing about the things I would have said, the ways I would have responded to put those people in their place and right those wrongs on the spot. Maybe some examples are coming to mind for you too. Um, it's hard to ignore, isn't it? When we are treated poorly, spoken of unjustly, or even just slighted. In that case, the the offense is really just against our own sense of self, our own sort of ego. But even our own nature, our own souls, cry out for retribution, for a righting of wrongs, for justice to be done. And we're right. That is God's imprint of his divine justice on our hearts. And if that's true, even in the smallest human example, our, our sense of injustice being only a dim, broken reflection of God's sense of injustice how much truer is it for him? Psalm 7:11 says, God is a righteous judge. Which, by the way, when we consider our own lives, don't we want to celebrate? God is a righteous judge. All, all things will be solved in the end. Nothing will go unseen. Nothing will go untended. God is a righteous judge. A God who feels indignation every day. Our God is provoked by injustice. He is not sitting on the sidelines of our universe, not noticing as things go to pieces in our lives or those around us. God is incensed by injustice. God will not let injustice go unchecked, and he will not let the unjust go unpunished. Now, that idea might invoke a vague sense of pleasure when we think about those who have wronged us. We wouldn't mind our own enemies seeing their, getting their own comeuppance in the ways that they have treated us, but it should also produce somber fear because each one of us has broken God's law. Every one of us has transgressed. Every one of us stands guilty before the divine judge, the one who sees all things, the things that we sought no, thought no one saw and no one would know. Our God is the God who sees all of them. What can we say before the bar of God's justice but guilty as charged. And so the question hangs in the air. 
two streams of thought throughout the Bible that God is devoted to his people in love and that God cannot bear iniquity. How will God ever reconcile these two realities? They seem to be a, an immovable force and an unstoppable, uh, immovable object. How can God love sinners? How can God be united? How can the holy God, who will let no one get away from with anything, be truly united to us? Which one is going to win? God's holy love or his complete and unassailable motivation for justice in his world? His righteousness or his compassion? And of course, the answer is the cross. The answer is the cross. In the cross of Christ, God has executed his final judgment on human sin for his people once and for all. God the Father has poured out every ounce of divine anger toward his people's iniquity on Jesus on the cross. He was the only perfect man, the only one who never deserved it. And it wasn't just an ugly death, like I said. It wasn't just Jesus on the cross, my head, my head, my hands hurt, my hands hurt, I wish I could stop it, it hurts. It was Jesus experiencing the agony of soul that each of us have experienced to some degree or another. Each, uh, Jesus experiencing the agony of soul that each of us rightly deserves for sins, and it drove him to sheer despair. During his life on earth, Jesus seemed to be sort of unflappable, doesn't he? And on the cross, there he is, he seems to be just losing his mind. What's happening? He's descending into darkness for us. How can God have his people without uniting himself to our sin? Only if he cancels that sin through the death of another. And on the cross, Jesus satisfied God's divine wrath for human justice, for our, for his people's injustice, his people's sin, completely. Jesus drank to the dregs all of God's righteous anger toward all iniquity, our iniquity. Do you know what this means? If you are a Christian, God has dealt decisively with your sin. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. God has not satisfied most of his wrath through the cross of Christ. God has not uh, resolved a portion of his anger toward his people's injustice. Jesus' work was not mostly sufficient to cover over the sins of his people. God has not done 99% of the work waiting up in heaven with arms crossed waiting for you to do the final 1% so that he can finally forgive you. On the cross, every ounce of God's righteous anger toward our sin, his people's sin, was exhausted. God's righteous wrath toward our sin has been exhausted on the cross. We're not going to hell anymore. <laughs> and it's because Jesus suffered hell on earth for us. Why did Jesus have to suffer? To satisfy God's wrath. And finally, we have to say, why did he suffer? To purchase his people. To purchase his people. 
if this is, if this is true, and praise God it is, it means a lot. At, at this point, I, I almost feel like my question might be posed in the wrong way. Jesus is this gracious and kind king who loves his people. Why did Jesus have to suffer? I wonder if Jesus were here, he would say, why did Jesus get to suffer for the sake of his people? For all the horrors that awaited Jesus on the cross, there were nothing to him compared to the joy of having you. You. Not generic sinners out there. You. Jesus thought the cross was worth it if he could only have you and me. Hebrews 12, 1 and 2 says, Since we're surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely let us run with endurance the race that is set us before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, the only one who did it right, that is to say, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross. How did Jesus endure the cross? For the joy that was set before him, despising the shame, and now is seated at the right hand of the God. It doesn't say, for the duty set before him, a vague sense of obligation that I, I suppose the Father expects me to do this. It doesn't say for the sense of purpose that he felt, the sense of what he might accomplish or for the honor he might receive, but for the joy. What did, what did the cross have to offer him? You. God would rather stretch out his arms on a cross than have to hold you at arm's length. God wants to rush headlong toward you in forgiveness and restoration and if he had to go through hell to do it he would let me ask you something this is how we naturally think do, do you think that Jesus went to the cross so that now he could stand aloof from you waiting for you to finally get your act together so that you could be friends again do you think Jesus is sulking in the distance, unwilling to draw near to you until you feel as bad as you ought? Do you suppose, do you suppose that having purchased your life through his son's precious blood, that God is now shuffling his feet to take care of your needs? Do you see what has happened? If, if what has happened on the cross is true for you and me, and praise God it is, then when God looks at you and me, he sees the perfection of his son as much as on the cross he saw the ugliness of our sin. He could not be more for us. How could we be more assured of the Father's heart for you and me than this? If we ever forget it, let us remember this moment. This is why we need to be reminded at least once a year, hopefully once a week, of what Christ has done. Because these are the lies that our flesh and our enemy love to tell us. Don't they love to tell us? And I hope that as I say them, they evaporate into the ether and we see right through them just like we ought to. Here are the facts. What God wants today, more than anything else, is for as many sinners like you and me to lay all of our sins down for the first time or the 500th time at the feet of Jesus that's the whole point. That's the whole reason he came. For as many of us to lay down all of our attempts to prove that we earned the cross, 
once and for all at the feet of Jesus and to collapse into the arms of his kindness and grace. In the cross, Jesus has paid the ultimate entry fee to our life, our lives. He wants all of it. He wants the driver's seat. What more, what more could God do to prove to us his love, to prove that he is trustworthy with everything you have? This is the cross. This is our cross, Christ's cross. Will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, thank you for the cross. Thank you for the cross. Jesus, thank you for the cross. Praise you for the cross. You are worthy. You're worthy of all praise and glory and honor. Everything we have, Lord, let us live a life. Let us live a life worthy of your sacrifice. Lord, let us lay aside everything that would hinder us from coming to you, even in this moment. Let us honor your sacrifice. And Lord, pour the love of the Father into our hearts. Pour the love of the Father into our hearts so that we can know no matter what faces us this week, this month, this year, before we are back here again, so that we can know with absolute certainty you are not just the great God of all holiness, you are the great God of love, the only one who is trustworthy to give our souls to. Praise you, Lord, praise you. And now as, as we worship you, Lord, remind us of the goodness of the cross. Amen.